a typical entrepreneur that we work with at the, at the incubator, if they had 15,000 extra, they would go to a conference or maybe do some more patent research or work on a technology more, something more, right? Their technology, nothing to do with sales. Exactly. They were like, we need to sell this thing and launch it. Right. So what can we do for 15,000? And you know, so ultimately they made a video, the product, made a website and, and got it launched. Yeah. So that was, that was impressive. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration. They'll help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, TuneIn, Radio Public, and Acast, and probably any other podcast system where you download your podcast from. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Bela Musitz, and my colleague Mike is with us as well. Today, we're going to talk about Simon Ballant, who had a great interesting story, uh, who took a very non-conventional path. I think uh, it's going to be a wonderful interview. What did you think, Mike? This was great. I thought Simon had a lot of interesting stories to tell. I thought this whole idea, or this is something I think that people should pay attention to, is here's somebody who calls himself risk-averse, yet he said this really cool unconventional career path. And he had some really interesting ways to make it happen. So I think the takeaways from this will be really interesting for people that if you say, oh, I'm risk averse, how can you still make a really interesting career for yourself, regardless of that intuition? You'll actually, I think, uh, not to give away too much, but you'll find out that being risk averse can actually help you take more risks. I agree. I thought he had some great points, and we'll listen to the interview in a second. And before we dive into it, just wanted to thank our two institutions, Clarkson University and Munster in Germany, for their support for this podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to email them to us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And uh, of course, leave us a nice favorable review in your favorite podcasting system. That's very helpful. So let's uh, dive right into uh, Simon, and we'll see you at the end of his interview for some further discussion. Hello. Today, I'm here with Simon Ballant, uh, who's a very successful entrepreneur, a person that I've known for 20 plus years. 
and uh, someone that has a great story to tell. So welcome, Simon. Hey, Bela. So let's go back to the early years. So any uh, history of entrepreneurship in your family or relatives or your... Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting question. At first glance, I think you might say no, in that... Um, so my family is pretty small. It's my, my, my parents, and then I would include both sets of grandparents because we all lived here locally in the Albany area. My parents had me when I was quite young, so my grandparents... Actually, my grandmother just passed away a couple months ago. I'm, I'm 45. So they were all kind of part of my family, and uh, if you were to des- describe them, I think you would say... They're academic. Uh, both my grandfathers were, were doctors, um, su- you know, successful doctors. Actually, one time, my one grandfather was chief of medicine at the one big hospital, and my other grandfather was chief of medicine at the other big hospital. And both grandmothers actually were professional. One was a doctor herself, and the other was a, a pharmacist. And then my parents were, were teachers. My father became a, a professor, ultimately. So it doesn't seem very entrepreneurial. But if you think about it a little bit more, I, I think maybe not entrepreneurial, but certainly they were non-conventional, and that was part of my upbringing. So if you look at my my grandparents, my father's side, you know, my, my grandfather was a doctor, but he grew up in Hungary. He left Hungary as a refugee just before World War II and went to England, where he went to med school, and that's where he met my grandmother, who was actually uh, one of six women who were the first class of women at Cambridge med, med school. Um, she was a, from a pretty aristocratic Anglo-Saxon family uh, where typically the daughter would marry some other aristocratic Anglo-Saxon family. But she wanted to join the Navy, she told me. That was her dream. And it turned out that the British didn't allow women in the Navy. So the next choice was to be a doctor. And she went to med school, which in and of itself was kind of strange. And then she married a Hungarian Jew refugee, which is kind of strange. And they came to America. So there's lots of stories like that about my grandparents, my, my, my parents. Yeah, they were professionals. They were, you know, uh, well-educated, but they bought a hobby farm when I was two and I grew up on a small farm. So I weren't necessarily doing the normal, you know, the normal thing for a, a person of their generation. So I think that was kind of a bit of the background in terms of my, my family that maybe uh, led me to sort of try new things and take some risks early on. Yeah. Yeah. Someone once described to me being a refugee. Mm-hmm. Leaving everything behind in a country is sort of like the ultimate in entrepreneurship because you're just risking everything, <laughs> right? People talk about risk, you know, can I leave my job? Yeah. Well, as a refugee, leaving your whole life yep. in search of some new opportunity that, you know, it's the ultimate risk. Absolutely. Growing up, did you have any entrepreneurial uh, leanings? Like did you mow lawns or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I always worked, always did something. Mm-hmm. For sure. So we were on this like hobby farm. Uh, so certainly there were you know chores related to that when, when we were little. And it was an old house. It was like a, built in 1813. And it was falling down. So my parents rebuilt the house room by room. And then when I was a kid, like six or seven or eight, I would help them do that. When I was maybe 10 or 11, I started doing like the farm stands and grew pumpkins. And I convinced some neighbor to let me pick all the plums he had and the pears on his on his yard and then I went and sold them so stuff like that yeah yeah so that's you know that's early entrepreneurial I was always always doing that over that yeah understanding the value of hard work and cash yeah I, mean, I don't know if it was part of it was the, the way people were back in the 70s and 80s kids didn't just get money at least we I never got money from my parents you no had allowance a, there's no allowance you had to you had to earn it you had to get right. it <laughs> 
So I was always, you know, trying to trying to do something. Yeah, yeah. I can remember as a kid, the big thing in my day was babysitting. Mm-hmm. You know, watch other little kids. And I remember it was like fifty cents an hour, maybe seventy five if you did it for you know a few families in the neighborhood. And I I figured out that I could mow lawns and and make like two bucks an hour instead of fifty cents an hour. <laughs> so I was like mowing lawns. It was yeah. like just you know made no sense and. Plus, the lawn never talked back and oh, did everything I wanted it to. Yeah. So cool. So I remember uh, when we first met, one of the things I learned about you was that after you graduated high school, you went on a little trip. Yeah. Can you tell us about that trip? Yeah. I, I graduated from high school. I was the youngest one in my class. I didn't skip a grade, but I started early and I was about a year younger than most, most kids. So somewhere along the line, I, I got this idea that when I graduated... And if I got into college, I could defer for a year and it would be like a bonus year because I was already young and then I could just do something. So I did that. I got into college and wrote them a letter in April of my senior year and said, hey, I want to take a year off. At the time, this was 1989, 1990. So the Eastern European countries were were sort of opening up and the Soviet Union hadn't collapsed yet, but was kind of changing. And that was pretty dramatic for me. So I I think I wrote them a letter saying I wanted to experience that and they said sure go go ahead so uh yeah that's kind of about as far as i had planned it initially and uh i worked that summer after my senior year blacktopping made about three thousand bucks which was my goal and then i uh took a one-way uh flight to england and i basically spent a year so 12 months backpacking through europe and north africa uh, soviet union China, Hong Kong, Japan, and then I, I flew back home um, two days before my orientation started at, at college. Wow! So uh, literally, yeah, was a, literally backpacking. Yeah, yeah. This, this was uh, <clears throat> I literally had a backpack and a tent. I you know I hiked a lot. Uh, I, I hitchhiked a lot. I caught trains and buses. Um, it was all overland, so it was probably thirty thousand miles or so. I just went by myself. Uh, I initially had talked but with a friend about going and he, he bailed on me, you know, a couple months before. You know, the memory, this, this is 1990, so certainly before the internet and before texting and email. So you definitely were out there on your own. If you wanted to go somewhere, uh, you had to buy a book to learn about it or talk to somebody you, you met. You, you couldn't like search TripAdvisor for the best places right. to go. Right. What gives a 16, 17-year-old young man the courage to say i'm gonna do that alone yeah. not even with not even with a, another person you know it's i, I don't exactly <laughs> don't exactly know and when i think when i when i think about myself i think of myself as being kind of cautious being sort of risk averse but i've had a couple of of, of opportunities recently to, to sort of speak to alumni or, or speak to classes and tell a little bit of my story and when i get done people usually come up and say wow you know you, how'd you do all that? And obviously you've got no fear. And, and uh, so from other people's perspective, I guess it was courageous. I, I didn't see it that way. I think part of it was, as I mentioned a little bit, my parents and my family members were, were unconventional. So this was sort of okay. And, and again, my grandfather was a refugee and, and I sort of had that maybe those stories. The other thing that I think happened, and I've done this several times, is that if I want to do something, I, I will plan to some extent. I mean, I'll think about it. I'll do a little bit of research, but I don't get hung up in that. And I, I sort of will force myself into the next step by basically just starting. And then that makes you take the next step. 
And there's lots of examples of that, including starting the business. You and I recently went sailing, and to some extent, that was part of the experience. I mean, I did a little research. I, you know, I looked at some boats, but ultimately, I just bought a boat because then now you have to take the next step. Right. I had this idea of going to Europe, but ultimately, what it was is I said, okay, once I make three thousand dollars, I'm going to quit my job, and then I'm going to buy a ticket and go to England. And that all happened within like three days. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't let myself think too much about it. I just did it, and now I'm. In London by myself, I and mean, you got to take the next step. You got to take the next step. And and most of those things are not really as hard as you thought they would be. The starting is always the hardest part yes. of anything. That's what I mean. Once you take that first Absolutely. step, the second step's easier than the first one. Absolutely. And sometimes I would, you know, I would actually intentionally get myself in situations where I had to go forward. You couldn't go back, and you know, we don't have enough time for all these stories. But but like I wanted to go to the Soviet Union. It was still a, it was still a, a country back then, and Americans weren't allowed to go. And I was able to figure out a way to get myself into the Soviet Union and not get out. I didn't have a plan to get out. But I figured once I'm in, they're going to get me out of there. They don't right, want they don't, me there. They don't <laughs> want me there. So they're going to get me out. And that was basically my, my sort of plan. Right. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm foolhardy or I, I, don't, I don't think things through. But I think in, in life and certainly in business and certainly in a startup business, you can get paralyzed with the fear of the unknown or paralyzed with analysis. To some extent, you just got to start. And if you start and make a mistake, you can then correct. But if you don't ever try anything, you don't, you know, you don't get anywhere. Because you actually learn so much more by doing than you ever learn by reading or thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You can you know, right. analyze anything to death. Yeah. So I think that's it's sort of a common thread in, in my life is I've often done that. And then what that means is whether it's quitting a job or starting a new business or traveling around the world or whatever, you know, you just got to you just got to give it a shot. So... You take this trip, backpacking trip around the world as a young lad. So now that it's a number of years later, yeah. what sort of uh, what key things did you did you learn from that that have served you well in the rest of your life here? I mean, you you grow up fast. You know, in my case, I was you know seventeen, and you you know you, you grow up meaning you need to become independent quickly. You need to know who you are pretty quickly. That was an important thing for me. I, I think if you, uh, you know, if you look at most every culture and tradition, they have built into their their culture this concept of the Odyssey. You know, the young person who goes away and goes through a number of highs and lows, and then comes back as a better person, right? And so Homer wrote about that. Right. In a way, that's what college is. It's a very protected Odyssey, and it's gotten more so than when when you went to school and when I went to school. Nice dorm rooms and you know air conditioning and all that, but that's basically what it is, right? You send kids away. We we, we kind of set some boundaries so that hopefully they come back in one piece, but they need to sort of fend for themselves and go through some ups and downs and, and, and come back. And so that was for me my, you know my my odyssey. Certainly, it wasn't all fun and games. It was you know really hard. A lot of it being alone, yeah, trying to figure out why you're doing it. Um, trying to find food sometimes, trying to bribe your way into a country, trying to bribe your way out of a country. So I think that independence, another thing that I guess I learned was, again, sort of this this grounding in who you are and that you can then take on different roles if you want. You can try new things and you can always come back to who you are. You know, I think sometimes when people get in a a career for a long time uh, or in a certain way of life for a long time, they maybe mistakenly merge their their occupation with who they are as themselves. And that makes it very difficult to then change 
You're separate. Those, separate. Right? Right? It's you. You are a lawyer. You got to get a divorce. Or, separate. Yeah. In some <laughs> cases, you do. Right. <laughs> right. Whereas, you, if you have a real clear sense of kind of who you are and that the world's around you, and you can kind of dabble in that world in different ways, different times, and do different things, and always come back to who you are. I think that gives you a lot of, right. you know, it gives you a lot of strength. Sounds like it also gives you a lot of maybe another way of saying what you're saying is it gives you a lot of self confidence in your ability to do things and to do a wide variety of things. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, again, I, I don't see myself as being very confident. I see myself as sort of always worried and anxious and stuff like that. But um, yeah, nothing was really, has ever been as hard as, yeah. as that experience. It wasn't all bad, of course. It was really good. But, you know, nothing was as challenging as that. Right. Excellent. So after your trip around the world, you go to college? Yeah. So I went to, um, I went to Brown University, which, you know, is a little not, uh, unconventional. And so my degree was East Asian Studies, okay. which is kind of related to international relations. Yeah. And then after college, what did you do? Uh, I went to Japan. Again, to put things in context, early 90s, the, the buzz was the growth of Asia, East Asia, emerging, you know, uh, Asian economies. So I thought that, you know, would be interesting to be a part of. So I had studied uh, East Asian Studies. Japanese was my focus. And when I graduated, I went to Japan uh, with the idea of going there maybe for a year to really, you know, hone in my Japanese language skills make some connections, and then, you know, start a career. And what did you do in Japan? I started out teaching English. So that's kind of the easy way to get to Japan as a, you know, an American. Um, so I worked for a, for a, it was a private but pretty high growth company that was teaching foreign languages. Yeah, I was an English teacher, but it was a, it was a growing company. We, uh, we were actually expanding at the time, adding about a school a week. So within six months, I was the head of a school, and then I, Started a new school, um, and then ended up moving into their head office, which is you know all Japanese staff, and I ran their I guess you call it like their real estate group. So uh, as I mentioned, we, we were adding a school a week, and every time we added a school, we needed to hire ten or twelve teachers, and we needed a place for those those are foreign national teachers, place for them to stay. So we would uh, rent or buy apartments nearby and furnish them and, and provide a place for these expats to, to live. Okay. So my job was to go out and identify these properties. Typically, I had to meet with uh, you know, not just the agents, but the police, the local council, because some of these were fairly rural areas, and convince them that you know, it was okay to rent to foreign nationals. And if there's any problems, you could call me. Mm-hmm. I would solve it. So I did that. We, the company actually went public about three years after I was there. And then we got into all sorts of things once we had more money. So we got into like international trade and uh, business education and, and some banking and all sorts of so stuff. So how many years total were you in Japan? Uh, four years. Four years. And you came back to the States? Yep. Uh, back to upstate New York? Yeah. My son was actually born in Japan. You know, it sort of made me think about coming back to the Albany area, which I did. I saved up some money while I was in, in Japan. So... You know, I, I spent a little time looking around for some work and then ended up getting a job at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute at their incubator program. And that's where you and I met. It is. You right. hired me. <laughs> right. We worked together for a number of years. So what was it like uh, working in a university-based incubator? What what kind of stuff did you do there? Uh, it was. I mean, it was great. Basically, you're, you're working around a bunch of smart people. So we were, the incubator was on campus and we physically housed couple dozen startup companies. Many of them were spinoffs from the university. So faculty, maybe they had a, you know, a, a patent that they were commercializing, some student ventures and some outside startups. 
So some mundane things like helping them with their office space and internet connection and whatever. And then also try to help them with their business, networking them to patent attorneys and uh, venture capitalists and things like that. So it was, uh, you know, it was great for me uh, as a young person who was interested in starting my own business. It was a way to be immersed in entrepreneurial climate without actually having to risk any of my own time or money and kind of get a feel for what I think was working as a this is startup business and what you know what wasn't working. Right, right. Sort of gives you a feel: is this entrepreneurial thing something that I want to be part of or not? Yeah, well, it certainly took took away the mystery, right? So I think a lot of times in life, things seem a lot more mysterious than they really are, and it goes back to that kind of just start, right? Because mm. then you kind of the walls come down and you you figure it out. So yeah, how do you start a business and what does it mean to raise capital? Well, I get to sort of see that. And, you know, you, you see the small company across the hall from you, you can put yourself in their shoes. You can visualize yourself doing what they're doing, and it gives you a lot more confidence. Right. And then soon thereafter, you you joined a small startup company. Yeah. So the great thing about being in that environment is that you know, you're surrounded by entrepreneurs and want to be entrepreneurs. One of my jobs at the time was to serve as like a judge for a uh, student class where the students had to create like a venture idea and then present at the end of their class. So I was like a judge. At one of those judging events, I met the students who had this idea of creating a uh, fire training uh, technology. That's what ultimately became Bullex, the company that you know that we ran and, and were pretty successful with. What made you decide, okay, this is the one? Yeah. Right? You, you saw a lot of companies at the incubator. Yeah. You saw a lot of student presentations. So what was the thing that said, hmm, this is the one that I want to do? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a few things. These guys, you know, I was, I was attracted to this company because I, I like the team. And this is why I like the team. So the, actually, it's interesting. The, 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 the product they had, it was a, uh, like explain it quickly, it's a live fire training device. So a piece of equipment, three by three, it was propane fueled, created flames, and you could use it for um, simulating a real fire, and you could you could simulate extinguishing that fire in a safe, clean, and kind of quantitatively assessed way. So I wasn't necessarily sure that was really going to go anywhere, or it was a big market. But the team of, of of three guys were impressive, and that and this is why they're different than almost every other company I ever met. Um, if we met, uh, and you know, I. I presented them with an idea or they had an idea or we talked about something to do the next day it was done or they'd started on it so they were actually you know doing things so this is still back you're at the incubator yep. and you would meet with them as as the incubator yeah guru. kind of as a mentor right. or something and, like that. and so it's in that context that you're saying this. Yep. so for example one time they needed a business plan because lots of reasons to have a business plan but they wanted to enter the business plan competition they didn't know where to start. So I said, well, come meet with me and I'll give you some sample business plans. So I did that like at six o'clock at night. And the next morning they came back with a draft, you know, whereas in many other companies, you talk about something and then the next meeting, whether it's a week later, a month later, and you probably know this, right. <laughs> quarter later, nothing really has ever happened. So they had a bias for action. Absolutely. Absolutely. So bias for action is a good way to, to put it. That's number one. Number two is they were laser focused on getting a product to the point where they could sell something. They were even okay with trying to sell something before the product was actually 100% done, as long as they had a pathway to get mm-hmm. there. So they actually, so I mentioned that business plan competition. They won that business plan competition, which 
at the time, RPI, I think you got 15000 in cash and some money in, in, in in-kind services. They took the 15000 and they met with myself and some other folks and said, okay, we have 15000 We want to get a website and, and kind of do our marketing launch. Like, can you help us? A typical entrepreneur that we work with at the, at the incubator, they had 15000 extra. They would go to a conference or maybe do some more patent research or work or, on a technology more. Something more, right? Their technology. But nothing to do with sales. Exactly. They were like, we need to sell this thing and launch it. Right. So what can we do for 15000 And you know, so ultimately they made a video, the product, made a website and, and got it launched. Yeah. So that was, that was impressive. And then, I, I don't know, I'm counting. The third thing was, I wasn't sure. I know that. I know I wasn't sure. I talked to my wife about it. But I just did it. And, Took that first step. Yeah. And actually, you know, uh, if I think about it, I went to a meeting with uh, one of the founders. We went to a, a marketing company to see what they could do with this 15000 actually. It was on the fourth floor of some, you know, some big marketing firm. And uh, we left and this founder and I got in the elevator and we pressed, you know, floor one and we're going down the elevator. I don't know. I thought for a second, geez, maybe I should tell him I want to join the company. And I just said it. I said, hey, can we meet for coffee? And he looked at me and goes, uh, yeah, why? And like, I'm thinking of joining the company. I knew once I said it, the, the trains left the station, right? All right. So that's kind of how it happened. You were sort of, if I remember correctly, the fourth person to join, right? There was like mm-hmm. three, I'll use the word original founders, just yeah. to be descriptive. And then yeah. you were sort of the first outsider, I'll use that word. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. yeah. So did that present any challenges in itself or was it just a non-issue? I don't think it was really a big issue. You know, when I was speaking externally... So I was often doing business development or trying to raise money or whatever. It was a bit of a challenge. How do you explain that you're kind of an owner? I mean, you're an owner, but you're not a founder. And yes. You know, the difference. But, uh, you know, internally, no, we, the, the four of us, so we were all directors. We were the only directors. We had different ownership stake. But we never, I was thinking back on it, you know, in the 10 years we were there, you know, whatever it was, we never voted with our shares, so to speak. We never, you know, no, no one ever sort of said, hey, I own 10% more than you, so right. this has to go. Right. We did not agree on, on most things, and we argued it out. Early on in the business, actually, we would we would meet every Wednesday night from 6 till midnight just to kind of plan the next week and go through stuff. You know, production issues, sales issues, marketing issues, whatever. And we would debate back and forth. We would always come to a decision, but it was never based on who owned yeah. what. I was thinking back to it. We, we never played... Uh, Office politics about yeah. it. Somebody once, I heard once somebody once say that if you're at a, a meeting of owners and the number of shares have to come up, that's a bad sign. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? It's not, the meeting's not going well. Right? Yeah, it never, it never came up. And we all, you know, we had, I think one of the strengths of the group, and it goes back to one of the reasons I wanted to join, everyone was extremely committed, certainly worked really hard, but everyone had different perspectives. They really had different skill sets. Mm-hmm. One guy was the whiz kid, you know, really darn D genius. The other person was production, marketing, and, and sales. You know, together we made the good decisions. So how did things go at first? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say they were ever bad. It was, uh, you know, early on, of course, cash is king. That's how we measured the business, how much, you know, what, what our burn rate was, and how many days of left we had. We actually had, you know, in our Wednesday meetings, one of our things on our spreadsheet was, 
we got 13 more days of cash or we got six more days of cash. Oh, now we're up to 28 days of cash. So, you know, it was a little tight. The initial founders, those three guys, when they first started, they didn't take a salary at all. Um, when I joined, we started taking salaries, but a very nominal, kind of just a survival salary. So it was, uh, you know, managing cash and trying to drive sales. You know, we were always pretty much able to stay ahead of the game. Early on, it was just, you know, how do we get from two sales a week to four sales a week, four sales a week to 10 sales a week? Um, and then how do we begin to, to bring in some extra resources to, to, to grow the business? But we were, you know, we were, I think, fortunate in that we got a loan from the, the local county IDA, fairly low interest loan that helped. And then we won a, a, a large regional business plan competition. It's like a $100,000 business plan competition. So that let us hire some extra people. And then, you know, besides that, we just try to manage our cash and, and, and always stay ahead of the game. Did you ever bring in any outside equity? We didn't in the end. We looked for it. You know, we came up with a business plan and, and venture pitches and we, we did that circuit. We actually got an offer for some investment, but in the end, we didn't, you know, we didn't take it. So we, we grew organically, just re, you know, kept reinvesting the money that we had, kept our expenses low. Yeah, all the way, all the way till when we were acquired. We never brought it in outside capital. Yeah. So, what were the what were the biggest challenges in your mind in in growing that business? Absolutely, the biggest challenge is focus. You know, not be distracted by all of the things that you could do, all the opportunities that are out there. I mean, there there are more opportunities than there are, than there is time. There are more things to do in a day. You can't get everything done. And so, our challenge, you know, on a day to day basis, but on a strategic, you know, month to quarter basis was where do, where do we put our time and energy in our, in our capital? To, so how, 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 did you, how did you make that decision, right? The phone rings and it's, and it's some potential customer saying, hey, can you take your product and modify it yeah. like this? Or can you do this special project for us? That happens all the time. Yeah, in for sure. Companies, right? and I, I was the head of sales. So, you know, I want to say yes right. to so everything, right? How, how did you guys make those decisions and sort through that minefield? So one thing that we did early on, I mean, in the first few months that I think was very valuable is we, we went through a strategic planning session amongst the four of us. You know, we got some books I got when I was getting my MBA and, you know, we did some online research on how to do that. And we, we spent a couple of weeks at it, nights, the four of us, five of us, we had another um, owner that was involved. Yet figured out who we were and what we wanted to be. So uh, that gave us then a roadmap and some, you know, some 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 guidelines, boundaries yeah, to say, okay, yeah. is, is this opportunity within the, these boundaries or outside these boundaries? So in our case, so our our company, we developed and manufactured and sold um, training equipment that was used to simulate emergencies. It could be a fire emergency or a chemical emergency or a military explosive emergency, terrorist emergency, whatever. It would simulate an emergency that would then be used to allow first responders to train on how to deal with that emergency. These were manufactured products, so things you could drop on your foot. They incorporated some kind of technology, and they were designed to simulate that emergency in a, a better way than the traditional way or in a cleaner way or a smarter way. And the, the end users, again, were first responders, people in emergency services, military police. So... We started out with a fire training device. So that's what you just described as sort of your first pass filter. Right? Exactly. So when the phone rings, it, it needs to go through that set of criteria you just described. And if it comes out the other side of that, you say, okay, let's take a deeper look. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So our, you know, our, first, our first product was this 
device which, which, which created a fire, a live fire, that you could use to um, train on how to um, use fire extinguishers. So certainly you could think of ways of expanding that product. So larger fires, maybe not just fire extinguishers, but, but hoses for firefighters, whatever. That was certainly a, a path we could go in. But, you know, our, our strategy said we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to compete in the area of developing training devices that simulate emergencies for first responders. So it didn't need to be necessarily fire. It could be a simulated gas leak, you know, a train that's carrying chlorine gas and leaks. How could we simulate that in a technology way that could allow for, for training? Um, yeah, so once we had that as our you know our roadmap, we then developed products along that along right. that line. And the phone, yeah, we had an interesting business uh, we set up intentionally in that we sold all of our product directly. So we didn't go through manufacturers, reps, distributors. We had our own internal sales force uh, working in Albany, New York, on the phone, talking to fire chiefs or training officers or guys in the military. And like a lot of industries, but particularly in the fire service. You know, they want to come up with something new, some new idea. Have you ever thought about? So they would tell us, and then that would get funneled up to me and to R and D guy, and we would we would we would vet that. Right. So eventually, you guys sold the business to a larger company. Going back to that first couple weeks, months, you know, we developed a business plan, and the business plan had key markets we were going to go after. This is the first couple months of the business itself. Business itself, right? Markets we're going to go after, and and uh, products and revenue growth and all the things you have in a business plan that would get us to the point where we could be acquired. I think in a typical business plan, you always have to say either be acquired or go public, right? It's kind of what you do. You know, we actually didn't take that business plan off the shelf very often. Maybe we should have done it more often, but we just had our heads down and we were growing the business and uh, we weren't really even thinking about getting acquired or trying to get acquired. We just, just trying to grow, 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 grow. And when we got to a certain revenue level, Suddenly, we started getting on the radar of folks. In our case, it was north of 20 million. Now we somehow we were, I don't know, we show up on some private equity. Somebody's list. Someone's list now, right? So then you start, we started getting, uh, I'd say once, once every two weeks, once, once a month, we get a, private, a call from a private equity. So pretty frequently. It started pretty frequently, yeah. So the private equity guy, he would call and say, hey, you know, I heard about you and I come and see you and... They would come and they would make, you know, the first pitch seemed kind of interesting. And then the 10th one was like exactly the same as the first one. <laughs> We're focused on, you know, small to mid-sized businesses and all that stuff. So I think that then got us thinking about maybe what it means to, to sell. We also, I think, through those meetings decided that we weren't interested in selling to a private equity investor or, or in, in getting ourselves involved with a private equity investor for a number of reasons. One was the... The actual multiples that typically we're offering seemed a bit low compared to what we could just generate ourselves. And then the you know the model of of those types of investors is to you know to take a business and to increase its value either by cutting costs, growing the earnings, and then making it the multiple make it worth more, or merging with some other business and making you know more um, more of a business. Either way, it seemed kind of destructive to our business, which uh, we felt. You know, we felt pretty emotional about all the employees or people that we had brought on. You know, all of them were our friends. We've been growing this business. So it made us think about, I guess, made us think about selling, but made us think about, you know, being wary of who we, we sell to. And then ultimately, uh, we just were approached by a strategic investor that in the end 
bought the business. And, uh, you know, during that process of, of meeting with a strategic investor, it seemed like the right fit. So I, we didn't really have a plan to sell it. If we did, we may have done some things a little differently in terms of how we try to drive earnings or how we structured our, you know, uh, our business model. You know, ultimately, we, we just worked hard and got to the point where, you know, we were attractive to people yes. in the market. Yes. So you had a lot of international experience, right? Yeah. Backpacking around the world. I mean, that's an international experience. Then you're spending time in Japan mm-hmm. um, doing various different things. So how important was that international experience at Bullex, at, at this company we were talking about? I'm biased. I would say very. <laughs> it's funny, when, you, when, you, when we look back at the timeline, the company was founded in late 2005, I incorporated like December of 2005, began making sales around then. And uh, I joined right in the beginning of 2006. By 2007, if I, look, if I think back about the timeline, uh, we were starting to expand sales into England and Australia. And then by 2008, we were in Europe. In 2010, we were building the world's biggest fire training projects in, in China, in Australia, in the Middle East. So we became international pretty pretty quickly. Maybe, you know, maybe we went internationally more quickly than we, we, we needed to or, or should have. I guess uh, because I had some international experience, I'd actually lived overseas for about 10 years total between high school and college and backpacking in, in Japan. When we had a dozen or so product inquiries on our website from folks in England, I said, okay, let's go take a look and see if people want this product. It wasn't a big deal for me. I, I didn't think it was a big deal to, you know, ship. It cost like $1,000, ship some equipment over. I got a cheap ticket for 600 bucks, rented a car, and drove around the UK for a week doing demos. You took that first step. Yeah. I guess at that for me, it wasn't a big step anymore. Right. Maybe for some people, it would have been right. a big step. For me, it was... Some people would study the UK market for 12 months. Yeah, we had people that suggested that, right? We connect with the consulate and they right. could do some market analysis right, right. and all connect that. with the consulate, with their trade guy. Hey, uh, and yeah. Blah, blah, blah. No, there. I remember putting the, the little budget together to talk to the guys about. And I think it was like 2500 bucks yeah. in a week of my time. And I'll drive around the UK and we'll find out if people want it. And I said, probably you can, I can sell the equipment, which I did. So I didn't have to come didn't home with it. didn't have to ship it back. Yeah, so I think we were profitable <laughs> like the first week. And that's how we actually entered these markets internationally. We didn't invest in an in a office or a manufacturing plan or whatever. We, every market we started with, so in the UK, for example, after that trip, we then took one of our sales people. Uh, we got a, a UK number online that routed to a number at, at our office in Albany. Uh, we had the person start early, like at five in the morning, which was 10 in the morning in the UK. So we were kind of within the time frame. And she just started selling as if yes. she was in the UK. And once that was going, then it made sense. We, we got an office, we hired some staff, and we grew. So that was important for sure. And then as we grew the business, you know, we got into larger and larger projects that required you know, some significant business development work and negotiation. And I think having some international experience, the ability to you know, listen to people, uh, to kind of try to understand what they're, what, what they're saying, what they're looking for, helped in, in that. that yeah. Excellent. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Uh, talk about mentors. Have you had any mentors in your life who've helped guide you along this journey? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, they've tended to be my bosses. 
uh, up to the point where I haven't had bosses. So that's one thing that maybe I missed. But yeah, I, I had, uh, you know, the, the, the key mentors for, for my business career were yourself. I was at the incubator. And uh, our common boss, Mike Walkholder, who was uh, ran the technology park at RPI. That was, uh, you know, that was key for me. And prior to that, in Japan, actually, I missed outside of business. I had sort of a, a father figure mentor in Japan that took me under his wing. I met over there. He got me my apartment. He, he kind of co-sponsored me for that. I ended up doing a little international uh, business with him. We, we set up a little trading business where we, we brought some stuff in from Korea. Yeah, he was a, he was a mentor and a role yeah. model. So so now that now that you don't have a boss, mm. are you doing any mentoring? You know, is I, that something you think about? Yeah, I I I I only do a little bit. I should I should do more. So where where I have been doing some mentoring is I speak at some 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 classes, yes. so some university type classes, and tell my story. Uh, I've had several opportunities to speak before alumni groups, you know, from from my high school. Perfect. Um, so I've enjoyed that. Yeah, it's something I I probably should should do more of. Because typically things aren't as complicated as you think they are. People get um, you know paralyzed by yes. the fear of the unknown, and I think a good mentor can sort of try to break down some of those walls, right? right? Take some of the mystery out, yeah. and hopefully do it in a way that the mentee can relate to. Yes, things are not as as difficult as they seem to be, but they're usually a lot more work than they seem to be. Yeah, so I learned that from you, and that's I say that all the time. Absolutely true. And for anyone looking to start a business, I, I tell them that. It's one of the first things I tell them. And I've met with several people that are interested in starting a business. They want my feedback. And I say that to them. I say, it's, it's not rocket science. I'm assuming rocket science is really hard. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It, it's, it's actually not even that complicated. It's just a ton of work. But that's important because if you're not willing to put in the work, you probably shouldn't get into entrepreneurship. Right. So. One of the things that, as a professor in a business school, that I often get asked this question, so I'd, I'd like to get your perspective on it. So students will, upon graduation, say, should I go start a business right away, mm. right? So should I, should, I, should I start this now, or should I go work for a company for two, three, four, five years and then start a business? What are your thoughts on that? The latter was my experience, and I think that was very valuable. One of the things I think I, I think I brought to this team, so the other three, the three founders were all college students. Um, this was their first job, fundamentally. Yeah, and they the actually, <laughs> actually all three of them really have never had a job, right. which also then poses some challenges later, right? Because right. <laughs> you're really unemployable. I mean, I'm unemployable now too. When I came into the business, one thing I, I was able to add was a little bit of perspective to them, but actually more importantly, when we were sort of communicating outside of the business. We were meeting with an investor or a business partner or a bank or a customer. You just sort of have a little bit more gravitas because you've, you've done something, uh, whether it was actually all that good or not. Right. You know, you, you've done that. Right. So yeah, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of value in that. And then ideally too, you, um, you know, can find work, a career that can build some connections that actually are useful for your entrepreneurial venture. So people that can be your mentors, Maybe people that can be your investors, maybe customers of yours. You know, the the the, the challenge, of course, is not getting yourself stuck. Mm-hmm. When you're young, like when I was backpacking, right? You don't have much to lose, <laughs> and you're okay eating ramen, right? Your expenses are really low, right? So you got to be careful of that. That's one thing I actually I didn't mention from before. You know, what's what was the value of backpacking around? 
one of the, I think maybe the biggest value was I learned how to live really cheaply. Right. So my $3,000, my budget was seven bucks a day all in, which I did. And then when I went to college, it didn't change. I think my budget went down a little bit because yes. I had free food. Uh, and then when I got my first job out of college, actually I kept my budget at $100 a week total. Which meant when I, you know, came back to the U.S. after four years, I had a little bit of money. Sure. And sure. then even, you know, when I was 30 and quit my job to join both, my burn, my personal burn rate wasn't that high. Right. right. And that allowed me to do some things. I think that, that's also a, maybe a danger for folks. Right? Yeah. You yeah. When you, when you live uh, below your means, it uh, gives you a lot of freedom of action. Yeah. It gives you a lot of freedom to do things that you might want to explore where when you're spending every penny you bring in all of a sudden your options are limited yeah i've had people say it to me again they say you're such a risk taker i can't believe it so no i'm not i'm really conservative i'm really cautious well you quit your job and you join this company and i remember thinking i talked to my wife about it you know and i and we we figure okay well our kids are like five and seven so i've got 11, 12, 13 years before they need to go to college. So I got like a, a 10 years or more before I need to like have some money. So it's a great time to start. Right. Because if it doesn't work, I, I got 10 more years to go find a real job. I got like nothing to lose. I figured, I, in my mind, I had nothing to lose. Yes. Yes. But some people don't feel that way. Right. Well, great. Well, Simon, thank you very much. This was uh, a great to hear your story. Thanks, man. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful story. So thanks again for being part of this. Yeah, anytime. Well, hi, Mike. Boy, that was a really great conversation with Simon. Uh, what was one of the things that really stuck out uh, with you? Well, as I mentioned in the intro, Bela, I was fascinated by this idea of being risk averse, yet taking chances with your career. What were your thoughts on that? So, you know, I, I see a lot of folks who have lots and lots of ideas and they do tons of analysis on it, but they never commit to the next step. And I think that was one of the real strong takeaways that I got from my conversation with Simon was he says that people think of him as being, you know, a risk taker, but he says, no, I'm really not. He goes, what I do is I do a fair amount of planning and analysis, but then I force myself to take the first step or the next step. And he talked about, you know, buying the boat or buying the airplane ticket for his trip around the world after high school. He goes, you just have to start someplace. That I think is is one of the big takeaways that I got from him. Yeah, and you know, even if you buy the boat and it doesn't work out, you can sell the boat. It's an asset. And people sometimes forget that, that if you're, your first step is to buy an asset that has a second best use or a resale value, there's not much of a risk there. And I've talked to a lot of potential entrepreneurs and they've said, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And yeah, if you're buying a plane ticket, it's got your name on it, you don't use it, it's gone. But there's a lot of things in life where you can buy it. And if it doesn't work out, you can sell it. We teach our 18-year-old freshmen that, both here and, and we did at Clarkson when I was there, that, hey, it's okay. You can you can buy that if it's tangible and it's, if there's a, a resale market for. So that's kind of an interesting takeaway. The second thing was when he talked about managing his kind of personal burn rate, right? And he was a little bit thrifty in his life, spent beneath his means, um, I always tell people my wife and I have our life set up so that we can live on one of our two salaries. The second salary is gravy. And if one wants to quit a job and do something different, we can do that. 
So, you know, it's a really, I think, a key to success is if you live thrifty, that gives you the opportunity to do some things if then if you're kind of overspending. And I realize that different people have different situations, but that is another connection to being kind of financially conservative internally, which gives you then the opportunity to be a little bit less conservative, to take that first step, to buy that boat or buy that plane ticket. So the other thing, Mike, that I'll say that I that I took away from this is this notion of that by starting actually taking that first step, you learn so much more and you get smarter about your journey than you ever can by just studying it more and thinking about it more. And I think that's another great sort of notion of one of the things that Simon talked about was that you can only plan and analyze so much. And then you get into diminishing returns. And then by actually taking that next step, by actually getting on the airplane and landing it in, in London and getting off the airplane and having to do something is really the, the best way to learn and move your project forward. Yeah, and it goes back to this idea of, do you need an MBA to be an entrepreneur or do you need to go to a startup academy or something like that? Sometimes it's just working for another small company. So you're you're taking a smaller risk for a few years, but seeing life through an entrepreneur's eyes by working for one, that's okay too. And and I think that was one of the things that Simon talked about when he was at the incubator at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He got to see a whole bunch of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial companies, how they acted, what they did, which ones made a lot of progress, which ones didn't. And so I think that gave him great insight. And remember when he talked about joining this company, because he wasn't a founder, he was like, you know, the fourth person. There was three founders and he was the fourth uh, person to come to that party. He said, these guys were special. He could tell that they had a bias for action. They got stuff done and they were really, really focused on getting a product into the market. Remember, he told that story, how they won a uh, business plan competition and he said most other companies that he's seen in the past would spend that prize money on developing the technology further. But these guys actually spent it on on marketing and trying to sell their product. I remember he, he said, I think it was off the microphone, but he said one of the mottos they had at his business uh, at Bullex, which was the name of the business, was that nothing good happens until a sale is made. So they were really focused on selling their product. And, you know, the other thing that that gets you is it really gets you specific feedback from your customers, because if they like the product, they're going to tell you what they like about it. And just as importantly, if they have problems with it or they don't like certain things, they're going to tell you about them as well. This notion of nothing good happens until the sale is made is, is not just a revenue statement. It's not about dollars but it's also about getting feedback and connected to your customers. Agreed. People walk with their feet and you can see what they really believe by how they spend their money. There's a big gap between saying you would buy something in a focus group and actually plunking the money down. Agreed. The other interesting point that I thought he brought up is lots of times in small companies, you know, the phone rings and a, either an existing customer or a prospective customer says, hey, could you do this? Which ones of those do you decide to chase and which ones do you not decide to chase? And I see a lot of companies struggle with that because they're excited about, hey, there's a customer interested about doing this and, and they're willing to pay for it, so we should do it. But at the same time, is it taking it away 
from their mission? Is it taking away from where they want to go? So I thought it was interesting that he said fairly on, they sat down and they said, okay, we're going to play in this field. And the field is, you know, tools for first responders to be able to deal with situations they may come across that they can be used for training. And and that was their domain that they were going to play in. And it, it they could use that as sort of their first pass filter when someone showed up on their doorstep and said, hey, can you do this for us? And I think that's another real important lesson for, for young companies. Yeah, but I'll push back a little, Bela, as much as I love you. But here's the thing, right? Sometimes you need to know when to pivot away from your original market. So this is really one of those kind of science is entrepreneurship a science or an art this is one of those places where it's definitely art sometimes yeah you need to stick to the knitting you need to stay to your focus you need to have that filter but if things aren't going as well as you planned sometimes you do need to say okay this is outside our scope but i think we need to to try this we need to do a small experiment and pivot potentially pivot into this marketplace so it's one of those things where i've seen success both ways and i don't think there's one right answer i think it depends on the situation you're in how do you like that? Argue a little uh, bit. Well, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you uh, because, you know, the, the, the real answer that all of us professors say is it depends. So you bring up a good point. I remember a comment in one of the other interviews we did where someone said, as an entrepreneur, it's important to be brutally honest with yourself. And if your company is not getting traction, i.e. you're not making sales, you're not making progress, then Maybe it's not a distraction. Maybe it's a new opportunity. And there are lots of there are lots of stories about that. How people chased one way, and that it was something that really fell in their lap that turned out to be the 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 thing that made the company great. So your point because is, you were wrong the first time, exactly. right? You were wrong, right. and you say, okay, I was wrong, and my customers, potential customers, have helped solve the problem. They've pointed me in the right direction. See, I'm a little ornery today. I told you that earlier, and you said, no, you don't sound ornery, but I am. <laughs> Right. And this is, I think, a really cool insight that, you know, it's if things are going great and you've got all the work you can handle. Sure. Draw that line. Make sure that you focus on on your core business because you don't want to upset your existing customer base. But if you aren't hitting your numbers, you need to be looking for these opportunities, maybe to pivot and look for some different customer groups. I like this approach. Excellent point, Mike. Excellent point. I, I think it's good. Let me go back to something else and ask you and ask you about your opinion, because I love this phrase bias for action. And the fact that Simon was really attracted to people that had a bias for action. And, you know, I won't say that you're older than me, but you're older than me and you have some more experience, especially in the VC space. I'll also say that you're better looking than I am. So just not to, you know, lower your self-esteem or anything. But how in your VC experience and as a professor, how do you identify people who have this bias for action? And even more importantly, if you're a young person or you're a person who wants to, to change careers, how do you develop or learn to have a bias for action? So it's a great question, Mike. And I know what bias for action looks like, but I'm not sure whether it can be learned or not. And I think there's some individuals, I think, naturally have a bias for action, i.e. they get stuff done. They're doers. They're not thinkers. And here again, there's a fine line. You got to think about some stuff, some amount. But some individuals, they just they just get stuff done. Like the example Simon said, right? He, he, he sat down with, with these guys on a, a Wednesday afternoon or whatever it was. And he said, look, if you want to enter this business plan competition, you need to write a business plan. And the next morning... They had a first draft of the business plan for him. 
Whereas he said other companies, you know, he'd have that same conversation and it was two or three weeks before they had a draft. So these guys had a real bias for action. So rule number one is don't be lazy, right? Don't put it off. But I think there's some concrete things we can talk about. I think things like goal setting, right? Set some specific goals that are a push goal for you, but that are in a time frame that is considered short and then follow through with that. Deliver at least 90% of what you promise when you promise it, or even better, a little bit before, right? So I think goal setting and follow through are two things that you can do to improve your bias for action. And, and I think they need to be uh, actionable goals, right? With a deliverable, mm-hmm. right? Because one goal could be, I'm just going to think about it more. <laughs> that's not a goal. <laughs> that's that's <Yeah>. an activity, <laughs> Right. The, the activity yep. is think about it more. The goal is to actually produce something that's, that's concrete from that time you spent thinking about it, whether it be a document or whatever. Yeah, smart goals, right? Specific, measurable, actionable. I forget the R and time-oriented, right? Mm-hmm. So this is a good thing, I think, for people to practice is set better goals. Action-oriented, fast turnaround, reasonable. I think the second related person is going, now I've set these goals. How the heck am I going to do this in one day? Ask people to help you and ask for specific tasks, right? Hey, could you help me? Can you do this task by this date? I would really, really appreciate it. And then remember to thank people when they do it. I think a lot of times people don't manage well because either they don't ask people to help them, right, to build something, and then they don't, they're unappreciative after it's done, right? So they won't help you a second time. Yep, I agree. Yeah, so now we have a couple of concrete kind of action points that I think people can practice. And I think I think your notion of engaging and asking other people for their thoughts, ideas, and help is a good one, right? It's it's very rare that the successful entrepreneur is the lone person sitting in the middle of the woods in a cabin who never interacts with people. Yeah. It's typically the opposite, right? It's it's someone that's very very much engaged with individuals or industries or markets, whatever. And you're right. I think this notion of setting goals is a good one where they're sort of actionable goals with sort of concrete deliverables and they don't have to be huge goals. And I think, I think the other piece that I would add to that, Mike, I think in my own mind, it's better to have five or six small goals and I do one each day than it is to have a big freaking goal that's due in 10 days. Absolutely. Because because I can sort of measure my progress along the yep. way. And, and give yourself positive feedback. There's definitely this idea of breaking big goals into smaller goals. And research shows that that's, that's beneficial. Hey, and I think the last piece of this to wrap this, this thread up is something that my friend Tim Chagru paraphrased other people. He didn't make this up, but he always insisted on this in me. And don't let perfect get in the way of good. Right. So, again, with this idea of the business plan, I'm sure that was not a, bi- a perfect business plan that was delivered overnight to Simon, but it was good. And if they would have tried to turn in a perfect business plan, that they would have never gotten it done the next day. So you have to know sometimes perfect is really important. If you're doing brain surgery, perfect is really important. Right. Um, right. There's certain types of tasks where perfect is good, but the vast majority of tasks, good is good enough. Good and fast is better than perfect and slow. And in entrepreneurship, where you fail a lot, I think you need to reorient yourself towards getting things done quickly and getting them done at a very good level and not worrying about perfect for things that don't need to be perfect. And I think that can help you with a bias for action as well. 
Agreed. Great summary, Mike. We could do a whole class on this, I think. Yeah. This is interesting. Yep. It was, a, it was a good conversation with Simon. A lot of great takeaways. Hope you all enjoyed the interview uh, with Simon and you too got some great takeaways. Again, please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends. Give us a nice review in iTunes or whatever system you use for downloading your podcast. Uh, we'd like to build our listeners. And uh, the more we have, the better off for everyone. So we appreciate you listening. And until uh, the next time, uh, hope to see you soon. Oh, by the way, let me add one thing. I'm not sure we've ever said this on a podcast, but we do release these uh, one podcast every two weeks. That's for now the schedule we're on and uh, just want to set a level of expectation that uh, every two weeks we will release a new episode. So thanks again for listening. Take care and uh, see you at the next uh, episode. In two weeks. Maybe I won't be so crotchety. (laughs) Well, actually, maybe you being crotchety was good, Mike. I don't know. Maybe we'll get some hostile feedback. That'll be perfect. (laughs) I'm fired up. All right. Have a good two weeks, Bella. I'll, I'll see you in a couple. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bye. Bye.